Hello, and welcome to the podcast Story and Fiction, produced by StoryandLiteraryFiction.com. This is Episode 2 of Tour of Duty, read by the author William H. Coles. Thanks for listening. Part 2 Chapter 8 Skiing in the Tyrol February 1962 the wonder and excitement of skiing in the Austrian Tyrol was a yearly diversion for many personnel on the base at Chateauroux, and as a top tour guide for personnel, Ingrid arranged a trip to include doctors and other staff from the hospital. Oliver, who had skied in Colorado, George and Ann Pingree from northern Utah, and Angus Peabody from Bangor, Maine, were expert skiers. But Miles, Ingrid, Carl Brooks from Texas, and Tamara, Angus's wife, were inexperienced and spent two days training and learning on bunny slopes at the resort before taking to steeper slopes with their instructors. They started from the base in a private hired van leased by the U.S. government for non-official excursions. After a few minutes on the road, Ingrid stood up, taking the guide's microphone at the front of the bus to speak to all the passengers. A welcome... This tour is organized by Base Travel and Recreation Department. Many of you don't know our doctors at the hospital, and since we'll be together for almost a week, I'd like you to make their acquaintance. She called on Texan Carl Brooks to speak to the group, a GMO. He was shy and reserved, and likely unknown to most, and to a few others only in passing. Tell us about yourself, Carl. Carl came forward as Ingrid returned to her seat next to Oliver and stood in the aisle at the front of the van. Ah, hello to all those that don't know me, and good to see my colleagues. My name is Carl Brooks, here from Abilene, Texas. Since there are no ski resorts in Texas, I'm not looking to impress folks on the slopes, so I hope you'll remember I'm a companion and worthy of an ounce of pity when I fall, he smiled. Hey, what shall we call you, Doc? Someone called out from the back. We're off base now. You just call me Carl. Ingrid turned to the passengers. I'm Ingrid. We're all on a first-name basis. Carl continued. Well, I grew up in Abilene and went to Texas Tech, and I knew folks from Dias Air Force Base. They were good people, and after med school, I wanted to join the Air Force. Carl's in for life, Angus called out. Not quite. Twenty at most, Carl said. He continued. I got drafted after an internship in Austin, and I signed on on thinking it was the best career I could have. Hey, are you married, Carl? Angus baited. Heavens to Betsy, no. Never found a girl who thought I was good enough. Maybe on this trip some frulein will take a fancy to you, Angus continued, right? Well, I thank you for that, Doctor. Certainly do appreciate the thought. What do you do outside the hospital, Ingrid asked. Haven't I seen some of your work in the commissary gift shop? Yep, I do them painted wood carvings of a cowpoke. The ones with him holding on to a calf in front of the saddle with its belly down and its legs hanging down each side of the horse. I named it Almost Home. I've seen those, Aunt Pingree said. They're beautiful, Carl. I thank you, ma'am. Can't hear you from back here, someone said. Speak louder, Ingrid whispered to Carl. 
So, uh, do you ride? Ingrid asked, so all could hear. Worked on a ranch in North Texas a couple years. Uh, where did you learn to carve? From my granddaddy. Well, we need to find you a companion on this trip, Angus' wife said. You deserve a good friend. Carl dropped his head, his forehead wrinkled, cheeks flushed behind two-day growth of off-duty beard. Now, I don't want you thinking like that. I signed on for skiing. Anger leaned over to Oliver. Tell them about us, she said. Oh, Jesus, Oliver said. It's not one of my talents. She lowered her voice. Just do it. We need to make this a compatible group. Oliver stood and took the microphone as Carl sat down. I met Ingrid when we were in high school together in New York. Then we went to separate colleges. Ingrid went to Finch College in Manhattan, and I went to UMass. I skied in Colorado and Utah mostly. Uh, she's a beginner. Ingrid turned to Angus and tomorrow. Angus took the microphone and spoke loudly over the engine's fluctuating drone. He told of his family heritage as a lobster man on the main coast. He and Tamara had married when they were young and had four children. I've never tried to ski, Tamara said. She's not athletic, Angus said. I am too, Tamara rebuked. I played field hockey in high school. Uh, that doesn't count, Angus said, speaking tersely to Tamara. That poor woman, Ingrid whispered to Oliver through clenched teeth without turning her head. Can't hear back here, someone said. After Angus sat down, a few others introduced themselves, and in the silence that followed, Ingrid got up and asked the driver about their arrival time. He replied in French, but she understood. There is a rest stop ahead, she announced, and it will be about two more hours to the border. We'll arrive around five. She visually surveyed the passengers. She was pleased. Most seemed satisfied and eager to arrive. On the sixth day of the trip, before their scheduled departure, they all had an early breakfast before daylight in the lodge. Clouds layered close to the earth, scraping the peaks of the mountains and dropping heavy snowflakes on an already dense snowpack. Oliver, Georgian and Pingree, and Angus, as the expert skiers, took the first cable car out to the highest run. The beginners, Miles, Ingrid, Carl, and Tamara, relaxed for an hour or so before taking a half-empty eight-passenger gondola to a lesser peak. Have you enjoyed yourself so far? Ingrid asked Carl and Tamara. It's the best, Carl said. I'm worried about the children, Tamara said. And yesterday was hard work. But you've really done well, Ingrid said. You're amazingly agile. Learning to ski made me focus, keep my mind off the base, Tamara said. It was relaxing. You've really improved, Miles told her. Tamara smiled. She had always believed she could ski, and Miles' words pleased her. She wished Angus had said them. The front of the cab angled with forward motion as metal cables lifted it with slow, jerky momentum from the station to the first steel tower. They looked out the windows on all four sides of the gondola. After fifteen minutes into the twenty-minute ride, a terrible rumble of a landslide deafened the skiers. Thousands of tons of snow cascaded down the mountain from above. 
a rolling wave of advancing edge threw sheets of snow and mist into the air. It's going to hit us, Carl yelled. Get down on the floor, Miles cried. He and Ingrid flattened out face down, but Carl and Tamara froze, still standing, clutching metal poles that extended from floor to ceiling. The gondola was still moving, and the tower they'd just passed cracked as if made of toothpicks and fell over, steel cables snapping like gunshots. And then a deafening crack as the support cable snapped and an instant screech of cable on cable. Dead silence surrounded them. The cab swayed on the pitch-winging cables. A second wave of snow continued the onslaught. It's going to hit us again, Carl yelled. Miles and Ingrid were still flattened face down, but Carl and Tamara continued standing, clinging to their vertical poles. The gondola lurched. My God, Carl screamed. Tamara moaned. A loud crack and another roar from a second mass of the avalanche passed below them. It engulfed a cable support column, and the cab lurched violently as a cable clanged against metal. Carl and Tamara were hurled to the foot of the pitched cab. Miles and Ingrid, still on the floor, clung to the oscillating central pole. Is everyone all right? Miles shouted. Then the last intact support cable gave an ear-piercing snap, and the gondola plunged 100 feet straight down, entering the snow end-first, throwing Ingrid and Miles down on the forms of Carl and Tamara. Half the cab was buried in snow, the upper half still enshrouded by pulsing currents of snow swirling around the exposed portion of the cab. Miles touched Ingrid, no response. Carl, he called out. Tamara! But there was no response. The two of them were lying face up at the lowest end of the cab. Miles immediately turned Ingrid over. She was breathing. He unbuttoned her coat and felt the quickened pulse in her neck artery. Miles then crawled to the corner where Carl lay only a few feet away. The swirling snow around the exposed part of the cab had settled and there was enough light to see Carl's head twisted and bent back close to a right angle. Miles removed a ski glove, but he could find no pulse. He positioned his ears close to Carl's gaping mouth, but there was no breath his neck fractured at the cervical spine. Miles slid to where Tamara lay on her back, her face bruised and bleeding, arms splayed. A metal strip from a window casing had penetrated her coat, entering her abdomen just below the sternum. Blood darkened her coat, where the metal strip had entered, and the six inches of metal still exposed pulsed with the beat of her failing heart. Her eyes were open, she coughed and gagged. Blood spewed from her mouth. Miles unbuttoned the coat from the bottom, careful not to disturb the strip. Movement or removal would only increase the hemorrhage. He ripped the dress near the wound. There was an eight-inch laceration of fat oozing over the edges next to the entrance wound. The bleeding in the abdomen bloated the stomach, pressing on the rib cage and crushing the lungs, reducing her intake to a faint, useless gasp. Below Tamara's chin, a gushing stream of blood obscured the Velcro fastener. Miles ripped open the torn sweatshirt parka from the bottom. Tamara cried out, a harsh sound without meaning. Her form went flaccid, her eyes fixed on Miles. The hardened fear of her look dissipated just before her eyelids half-closed, and she died. 
Miles moved closer to Ingrid still lying on the floor, motionless, her face void of any conscious movement. Her pulse was strong in the 80s. Her breathing was shallow at 20. He positioned her head to keep the airway clear. He found reflexes in her extremities. She had a swelling on the back of her head. Her pupils half dilated, both equal and both contracted. His shadow shifted and the faint light from the exposed front of the cab illuminated her eyes. Frost began to accumulate on her disheveled hair. Her hands were cold. He put the one glove that had fallen off back on. She had a concussion, which he could not treat there. He would keep her as warm as he could and hope she regained consciousness. He lay beside her, his arms around her from the back. Her head cradled on his right arm so they could mutually conserve heat. She moaned and half opened her eyes. Uh, can you hear me? Miles asked. She nodded ever so slightly. We're going to make it, he said. The other, she whispered, resolved. She closed her eyes. He held her firmly for many minutes until her eyes half opened again. With the greatest effort, she opened her eyes and looked to the side to see him. The corners of her mouth tipped up slightly in the best smile she could muster. I'm here, he said. Her smile widened and she tried to speak, but a sound came out like the cry of a baby kitten. Don't leave me, he said. She nodded just before she lost consciousness. After another hour, awareness of time slipped away and Miles resisted the peril of semi-consciousness to be sure Ingrid's breathing remained unobstructed. Three hours later, she moved, her head turning, and an arm reached out briefly before falling limp again. Twelve hours later, now in a semi-conscious fog, Miles heard the clatter of an approaching snowcat. He sat up, still holding Ingrid, and when the yellow cone of a torch swept over the interior, he gripped her tighter. He could feel she was still alive. The noise of a crowbar straining, then pounding to clear an opening by breaking the window and cutting through steel caused Ingrid to shudder, then relaxed. Her eyelids quivered, but were still closed. The scraping and pounding continued. Do you hurt? Miles said, leaning close so his lips touched her ear. She moaned. Where are we? On the mountain, Miles said. Will we die? He held her more firmly so she could sense he was with her. Rescue is here, he said. She moaned aside, drifting into unconsciousness again. He feared for a world without Ingrid and wondered why he had never fully realized the value of her companionship until now. Both were taken to the hospital. Ingrid had a concussion, but no signs of brain damage or internal cranial bleeding. She was in intensive care for constant observation, awake but disoriented and sedated. Miles was admitted for hydration and observation. Oliver, George, Ann, and Angus were on a more difficult mountain that was untouched by the disaster. Oliver came to see Miles after he had checked on Ingrid. She was going to be all right. He said the remains of Carl and Tamara had been transferred to Innsbruck, 
and were ready for return to Chateauroux. Thanks, Oliver said to Miles. You saved her life. Are they sure she's okay? Everyone is confident she'll recover. I haven't seen a doc yet, Miles said. A neurosurgeon saw you when you were sedated. They'll keep you in hospital for another day or so. Then I'll hire a van to take you and the others back. And Ingrid, Miles asked. She'll soon be out of intensive care, but they'll observe her for a few more days. I'll be with her and bring her home when it's time. I think I'll give up skiing, Miles said. I'm with you, my man. Never again. Chapter 9 Bruce and Ina 1962 Miles Miles encountered Master Sergeant Bruce McKenzie and his wife Ina, who lived across the street and down a few houses, on their walks around Brasso, and had spent many minutes in pleasant stand-up conversations. One evening, they invited him to a home-cooked dinner. Bring a guest, they said, night after next. Miles asked Oliver, who declined because he was on in-house hospital call. But be careful socializing with NCOs, Oliver said emphatically. He's a genuine human being, Miles said. Hey, you're a commissioned officer with responsibilities of no socialization with those of lower rank. It weakens discipline. That's Springer's rule. There's no harm, Miles said. Well, I can't go, Oliver said. Ask Ingrid if you want. Ingrid knew of the McKenzie's and was pleased to attend. Ina had set a table for four with a white linen tablecloth, sterling silver utensils, Limoges china, and Waterford crystal, all procured through weekend excursions to ever-prevalent antique shops in France. During dinner, Ingrid commented on the paintings on the walls they'd seen. Bruce does them, Ina said. They're so accomplished... Is there one you especially like? Bruce asked. They're all pleasing, Ingrid said. I especially like the one over the sideboard of the road lined with Italian poplars. How did you learn to do this? Miles asked Bruce. Oh, I painted for years with satisfaction at home, but when I got here, I had the time to study with Gertrude Feynman. She had a studio near Arles. Have you ever heard of her? Neither Ingrid or Miles knew of her. Do either of you paint, Bruce asked. Not even Barnes, Miles said. I do paint and I love to draw caricatures in ink, Ingrid said. I've studied art for years, but without much artistic accomplishment. It's hard to find a good teacher. Well, Gertrude was cantankerous and eccentric, but she excelled at teaching. She survived incarceration as a Jew in Bergen-Belsen and died four years ago from cancer. I value every minute I was able to spend with her, Bruce said. Ina and Gertrude collaborated in some fantastic meals for village friends at Arles. You teach her on base? Ingrid asked. He teaches in our spare room, Ina said. It's what I want to do when I get out, Bruce said. Retire from the military and teach art. Uh, what medium? Ingrid asked. Primary oil on canvas. I studied famous artists of the past. 
It helps me improve my craft and create ideas. Paris is unique for learning great techniques of the past. How does an artist become uniquely individual, Ingrid asked. Everything seems to have been done. Uh, I'm not sure that's true, Bruce said. Every human brings their own perspective on the world, and they make a unique contribution, even if it's imitative in some way. But how can we stand out? Determine what beauty is to you and create it in your art. Well, that sounds impossible, Ingrid smiled. Ina laughed affection for her husband. Careful, Ingrid. You've triggered Bruce's lecture. I'd love it, Ingrid said. Non-artist views of art are so different, Bruce began. You go to the Louvre. There are patrons who glance and pause for a fraction of a minute at a famous painting. They feel self-important, believing just looking at a famous work makes them more erudite. But there are others who spend hours engaged in a work of art that gives them pleasure. It evokes an emotion and seems to bind them to the artist's passion for creating. The work gives meaning about the subject matter and the artist. Ingrid's candid interest and her admiration for Bruce's knowledge occupied Miles' attention more than Bruce's specific thoughts. Her caring for others seemed unique and genuine and totally unaffected. Isn't value a factor in a patron's attention or respect, Ingrid asked, interest in the highest price paid? Yes, exactly, Bruce said. But those investor patrons often miss the opportunity to enrich their lives through art. How can I learn more, Ingrid said. Bruce looked at Ina and raised his eyebrows, silently asking her opinion. Ina nodded and began clearing the table. I'll limit him to ten minutes at most, Ina said. Then we'll have a glass of aged Cote de Leon with cheese. Bruce went to the back of the house and returned with a portfolio of papers. He laid five pieces of paper, all approximately the same size, in a stack on a table in front of Ingrid. A circle, a triangle, a square, a parallelogram, and a five-pointed star, all just stacked together. Use all the shapes and place them together in any way that pleases you, Bruce said. Any rules, Ingrid asked? They all have to be touching. Ingrid positioned the shapes with the edges touching in a row. Star next to parallelogram, next to triangle, next to circle, next to square. She looked to Bruce for comment. Are you pleased, he asked her. I don't know that I'm pleased, Ingrid said. Miles, come look. What's your reaction? Does it interest you? Does the positioning make you want to look again? In truth, Miles asked. Please, Bruce said. Only a little. Bruce reached over and changed the positions of the shapes. He positioned them so the parallelogram was on top of the circle, was on top of the square, was on top of the triangle, and above all of them, the five-pointed star. So what do you think now, Miles? Bruce asked. That's not fair, Ingrid said. You didn't say I could lay them on top of one another. Isn't that touching, he said to Ingrid. Then to Miles, comparing the two arrangements, which do you prefer now? The last one, Miles said, pointing to the new positions of the star on the circle. What's that got to do with making my art better, 
Ingrid asked, feeling slighted at being second best to Miles's judgment. We ask ourselves what is beautiful for us. That's different for each of us. If we can define elements of beauty that please us, make us enjoy, stimulate our memory, we begin to incorporate that self-aware knowledge into our art. Ingrid shook her head. I hear you, but I can't process the idea that you showed me. Look there, Bruce said to both Ingrid and Miles, pointing to the painting over the sideboard of the road lined with poplar trees. You said that pleased you, Ingrid. What did you find about the painting that made you say that? I, I like the scene, Ingrid said. So it's a choice of content that you like, the French countryside. I think so. I tried to reproduce the scene as I saw it, representational art, an imitation of what actually exists. I think you captured the beauty of the moment, Ingrid said. Well, thank you, but in an imitative way, not imaginative. Think of Van Gogh. Whether you like his work or not, it's memorable, creative, and unique, and it moves people. Think of Starry Night or Bedroom in Arles. He created art and made his work felt by others. How would you wish that you'd done your scene over the sideboard, Ingrid asked. Think for a moment in shapes. I wish the road slab was more two-dimensional, the sides closer to parallel, and I wish there had been some variance in the rendering, a suggestion of a curve, maybe, or a straight object like a tree at an angle fallen over the road. I should have experimented with brushstrokes, found something less meticulous and less stringent. I should have made a line of trees off-center. It's helpful to practice construction of a scene as shapes and colors that you've chosen for elements that are pleasing to you as the structure of your final work. And how do you know what is beautiful for our viewers? We don't for all viewers, of course. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But if we're good at our craft, our art moves many viewers in some way, evokes emotion or understanding of a thought or feeling. Through art... The artist transmits a passion, a love, respect, an intensity, even anger or condemnation that moves the viewer. Of course, as artists, we're never successful for all viewers. So how does that relate to me if I wanted to create a painting, Miles asked. Would I just do what Picasso did? And Brock and originators of Cubism, Bruce said. You could, but to copy them limits the boundaries of your creative imagination. I think we are inspired by others, but we must not be copiers. It's best to seek elements of another's success and use them to discover your own originality. And how do you do that? Ingrid asked. Gertrude had me spend weeks in the Louvre sketching and painting, copying the works of others. I learned elements of painting pictures that taught me principles I would use uniquely in my own art. But doesn't art have to look familiar in some way? Miles asked. Not at all. There can be art for some with an intersection of two thin black lines. There are so many characteristics that might move you. It could be color appropriation, differences in dimensions, shape, position, hues. I approached with a tray of cheese, a plate of fresh-baked macaroons, and four glasses of Cote du Léon wine. That's a good place to break, she said. 
As Miles walked with Ingrid back to her house, both were silent for more than a minute. Thanks for taking me, Ingrid said. What extraordinary people. Bruce taught me a lot in a short time, Miles said. I wish I could learn from him, Ingrid said. When you were in the ladies, I asked him if he would take me on as a student. He said he'd work it out. Well, I was thinking that, too. I just didn't know how to ask him. Miles stopped. We'll go back, he said. Really? Why not give it a try? Ingrid smiled. A few minutes later, they were at the house. Bruce opened the front door. I know it was in the kitchen. What's up, he asked. Ingrid wants to take lessons, Miles said. Could I? Ingrid asked. Bruce thought for a few seconds. Well, the problem is I'm only going to have one evening open on the schedule, a Thursday. Could we alternate every other week, then, Miles asked. Better yet, could we come together every week, Ingrid asked. Do you have room, Miles asked Bruce, liking Ingrid's idea. Bruce concentrated for a few seconds. I could make room for you guys, he said, smiling. I'm sure you two would be my best students. Can we start next week, Miles asked. I'll have an easel and a stool for each of you. I'll send you a list of the paints and supplies you'll need. Each of you should have your own. You'll have to go to the art store and tour. They're well stocked, but call ahead. They have weird hours, and you have to wait. He went back into the interior and, a few seconds later, returned with the painting of the French countryside over the mantel that Ingrid had liked. He handed it to her. For you, he said. Chapter 10. Emergency House Call. 1962. Miles. When Belinda May's staff sergeant husband, Andrew, was assigned temporarily to Libya, her mother and sister returned to the States. Belinda May slid into a lonely despair with her only two children for companions at their quarters in Chateauroux. For support and commiseration, Ingrid visited as often as she could. One Saturday, late in the evening, Ingrid called Miles at home. Belinda May's thinking about suicide, she said. Belinda May? Oh, that sweet, caring girl that was with us at Oradora, Sir Glenn. What's wrong? She needs help. She should go to the hospital, Ingrid. She won't go. She's got no one to stay with the children. Isn't there a neighbor who could watch them for a while? I could go, but it's not that. She's really afraid of someone at the hospital. Who? I don't know. Would you go with me to help? She knows you. Ollie's at the bumpy landing, and I'm really worried. Miles picked up Ingrid, and they drove to Belinda May's. When they arrived, the front door was open to crack. Belinda May lay on her side on an overstuffed sofa in the family room, a pillow over her head. She did not speak or respond when spoken to. Supposedly, the children were in bed, but squeals with jabber and clatter with bangs came from a back room. Quiet the children, Miles whispered to Ingrid, who went to the back rooms. He took an upholstered chair where he could watch Belinda May and sat looking at her. In 30 minutes or so, Ingrid returned. Belinda May had not moved. Miles put his index finger to his lips. 
to signal Ingrid to be quiet. He pointed Ingrid to another chair close to him and facing Belinda. After another 15 minutes, Belinda May began to sob, her body trembling. Ingrid rose to go to her, but Miles signaled her to sit down. With time, Belinda May calmed. She put the pillow to the side and turned, still full length on the sofa, to look at Miles and Ingrid. It had been more than an hour and a half since they arrived. The children were finally asleep and quiet. How do you feel? Miles asked Belinda May. She said nothing, and Miles held up his hand to stop Ingrid when she moved again to go to Belinda May. They waited another ten minutes. I know it doesn't feel good, Miles said to Belinda May, but it doesn't last forever. He paused. We're here to help until it gets better. Belinda May sat up, holding her head with her hands, her elbows on her knees. She said nothing. This is a bad time. For your sake, let us take you to the hospital, where there is always someone to help. The children, Belinda May said dismally. I'll find someone to care for the children, Ingrid said. They'll be safe. I don't want to go. Why is that, Belinda May? Ingrid asked. You don't have to answer, Miles said. Let me admit you until you feel better. Belinda May withdrew into herself again, her eyes closed, her breathing measured. What is it about the hospital, Miles asked. Is there someone there you don't want to see, Ingrid asked. Belinda May retreated again, sobbing silently. Who is it, Ingrid asked. Belinda May leaned back on the sofa and closed her eyes again. After another long pause, Ingrid said, I'll stay with you in the hospital so that whoever or whatever you're afraid of won't trouble you. Ingrid and Miles waited a few more minutes until Miles nodded at Ingrid and said to Belinda May gently, Get your coat. Ingrid will stay here and find someone to care for your children. Give her your keys. I'll take you to the hospital. I'll come to stay with you as soon as the children are cared for, Ingrid said. And I'll be with you until Ingrid can come, Miles said. Things will be better. We'll be sure of that. Ingrid stayed with Belinda May in hospital for most of four days. On the fifth day, Belinda May had slowly responded to rest and medication, and she returned home. That evening, Miles had dinner at the Stearns. Oliver spoke to Miles. How did you learn how to handle that crisis? Ingrid was impressed. Were you trained? Nothing special, Miles said. Well, pretty impressive, my man. I'm going to talk to Pamela, too, Miles said. Pamela? Ingrid asked. Pamela Gardner, the chief of nursing service, Miles said. She's great at what she does, and in a few days I'll ask her to review the suicides we've had here. See if there are any patterns that might point to the causes we might deal with. Ingrid gave Miles a brief glance, letting him know she appreciated what he was doing, that he was searching for the circumstances of Belinda May's agony. Have you had any suicidal patients, Oliver? Miles asked. Like all of us, I probably see a new one every other week, and plenty that I'm following. Do you see trends? Oh, they're all lonely. The longer we're here, segregated in this exhausted country, 
It's just going to get worse. The next day, Miles met with Pamela Gardner. We've had seven suicides in the last three months, Miles said, after introductory pleasantries. All dependents on all women. We need to find those in trouble before they act. Those with unwanted thoughts about killing themselves. It's hard to detect without knowing someone well enough to have their confidence, Pamela said. We should do surveys. I've outlined the questions. Search for the signs of depression and despondency. Ask about melancholia, despair, sadness, discouragement. Do they have emotional swings? Have they lost the desire to do things? Do they have memory loss? Are they quick to anger? Is their marriage satisfactory? How do they feel about their children? It's a good idea, Pamela said. I can contact the director of nursing where I trained. She'd have valuable suggestions. How would we get the survey out? We'd give a survey to women, inpatients, or outpatients at every visit a woman attends. Uh, should it be wider than that, people who may never come to the hospital? Well, maybe we pass out surveys on the spot at women's meetings and functions at the commissary. Conduct every dependent who arrives after, say, two months uh, to see how they're doing. And how do we translate the results into prevention, Pamela asked. Education and providing services to those who need help. It will be mainly dependents. The military may not be enthusiastic, but I don't see how they can object. Everyone has been touched by the suicide of someone they know. And we need to have services to help families who struggle with returning to some form of normalcy when they lose a loved one. I think we can make help available, Miles said. I talked with the clinic and ward managers individually. They were enthusiastic. They deal with so many problems on a personal level and care about their patients, and they felt some need for some action, too. That's good, Pamela said. I'll get the survey polished and to you for approval. I'll form a team to handle the distribution and collate the results. I'll keep you posted. Miles called a meeting of GMOs. Specialists and flight surgeons were invited, but only one responded. Springer was asked, but did not attend. We need to address the suicides among dependents, Miles began. Seven in the last three months. Oh, that's not our job, Ravenel said. We can't stop suicides. We have a responsibility, Jerry, for the well-being of our patients, Miles replied. Just words, man. It's crazy thinking. We focus on pain-free longevity. We're general practitioners, not shrinks. Miles scanned the group. Pamela had warned him to prepare for resistance. We're a hospital without a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist, he said. And we need to identify those who have death thoughts and worry about life's end. How are we going to do that? Captain Singh asked. It would take hours grilling each patient for dangerous thoughts. And it would take hours to establish rapport to entice them to reveal inner thoughts they'd be ashamed of, Ravenel added. None of us has the time. I agree about time, Miles said. I propose that we survey dependents routinely with a questionnaire. Uh, so what? Who's going to follow up? Abe Singh asked. 
our nursing staff would be the first line. I've spoken to them, and they see it's a way to make a difference. Who would have the expertise? We need experts. I've asked the division commander if it's possible to have a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist assigned to Chateau. How did that go, Ravenel said. He said it's Springer's duty, and I've talked to Springer about bringing experts from Orléans and Wiesbaden to train staff, Miles said. And Springer said we don't need experts and stop bothering him. There was an I told you so silence from half of the doctors in the room. Uh, look, Oliver said, Miles is doing all the planning. You really won't have to do anything. I just need your support, Miles said. Oliver looked over the room. You have our support, Oliver said. But Singh shook his head no. It is a waste of time, and the nursing staff will be swamped. Noted, Miles said. I'll keep working to identify problems that arise. The survey should be functional next week. When you find someone suicidal, I still don't get who's going to intervene, Singh persisted. As I said, at first it will be nursing. Later, maybe the patient's personal physician. Nursing personnel will establish contact and be a source of support of listing and sharing and referring. It's a pipe dream, Singh said. There was an extended pause filled with indifference from most. That's it, Miles said. All stood and began to leave. Thanks, Miles whispered to Oliver. Handle Springer carefully, Oliver said to Miles. He won't like an idea that's not his own. Outside the room, George Pingree approached Miles. It's a good idea, he said, but Springer will never accept it. Uh, thanks, George. But I'm going to press on anyway, Miles said. In the first two months of the survey project, there were no suicides among dependents. The success of the follow-up to the survey was evidenced by five admissions for observation for suicide watch and 12 patients frequently visited home by the nursing staff. Springer, stating negative economic impact, refused to hire a staff psychiatrist or psychologist and he would not release funds to support visiting experts from other bases. He noted that claiming success of a project on surveys was not scientific and could and probably was due to chance. He ordered Miles to stop submitting requests for additional personnel that went above his head, and he would make the decisions about staff on his own. Chapter 11. Escape. 1962. Miles. Three weeks later, Ingrid came to Miles's door before six in the morning. Belinda May killed herself. Oh, no. A neighbor called me. She sealed the doors on a window with masking tape and turned on the gas. A neighbor found her and called me. I saw her. She was sitting in the kitchen chair slumped forward onto a table. The children collapsed in death, still clutching their toys at her feet. I felt terrible. Miles could only imagine the depths of Ingrid's pain. Belinda may have been abused by life, but there was no rhyme or reason. I wish we could have done more, he said, feeling inadequate. She cried and he held her. It was worse than I knew. 
Her world had become complicated. She was pregnant, Ingrid said. Andrew's been in Libya for months. She was forced. Raped? Who would do that? She wouldn't tell me. She made me swear to never tell anyone that it happened. But now that she's dead, she feared retaliation as a liar. And she was convinced the military would do nothing to serve justice on one of their own, regardless of guilt. Well, she was probably right, Miles said. Is there anything we can do? She didn't want anyone to know. She was sure she would be the one to be blamed and nothing would ever be done. Well, let me make some inquiries. Don't reveal Blinda May's pregnancy. I understand, of course not. She never had a chance. Miles looked into Ingrid's sorrowful, benevolent eyes, damp with tears. There was nothing more you could do, he said. Miles met with Oliver in Oliver's exam room between patients. Belinda May killed herself and her kids, Miles said. Ah, uh, yeah, Ingrid told me. Staff liked her. She's always been a little jittery, Oliver said. She told Ingrid she was raped. Do you think it was someone in the hospital, Miles said? I doubt that. Well, why would she lie to Ingrid? Belinda May hadn't told anyone else, and Andrew was in Libya. I'm sure she didn't tell him. He might always doubt the rape might have been consensual. The accusations of rape are hard to decipher, Oliver said. Miles saw reluctance in Oliver's eyes just before Oliver quickly looked away. Someone in the hospital penetrated her against her will, and she became pregnant. She wouldn't lie, and it all adds up, Miles said. There's nothing in her chart about complaints or accusations, Oliver said. I looked too, Miles admitted, but she was afraid to speak out. She knew nothing would be done if she accused someone specifically, and that she would be blamed for seduction. I hope it wasn't a doc. Oh, it's not a doc, Oliver said. How do you know? But no matter who, it's always he said, she said. And the male would always be believed blameless, and she'd be ruined, Miles said. People are eager to think women are obsessed with seducing men. Oh, that's a little harsh, Miles. All of us are sensitive to possible accusations of what we do. Examinations are intimate by the nature of the exam. Miles shook his head. Someone assaulted her, he said. I'll ask around, see if anyone will know about rumors. Uh, good luck, my man, but don't screw up your career for a bimbo. She wasn't a bimbo, Ollie. She doted on her family. She wasn't promiscuous. She was deeply religious. Andrew has been away for months without a break. She'd be wanting, Oliver said. I don't buy it, Ollie. I'm positive she was assaulted. She was not a seductress. Ingrid knows that, too. Well, Ingrid can be blind about people she likes, and she likes almost everyone. Belinda May was wronged. It's just hard to prove, Oliver said. Well, if we're right, it's happened to others, and will happen again. You'll never find proof, Miles. If we know who's guilty, we can at least take some action, he said. No military lawyer would touch a case involving a dependent, Oliver said. But there must be other ways than legal to prevent it, Miles said.
The next day, Miles met Pamela, the nursing supervisor. She was alone in her office. She asked Miles to sit. You knew Belinda May, Miles said, leaning forward with intensity. Oh, it's terrible. When I admitted her to the hospital, did you see her? Every day on rounds, and twice I talked with her for half an hour or more. Something happened that made her take her life. Do you agree? Pamela paused, obviously resistant to sharing her thoughts, her countenance grim. Do you have any clues as to what happened? I see presumed molestation of women often, to tell you the truth, Miles said. Sexual? Always in some way flirting or touching or assaulting, and always with a cloud of innuendo. Do you know if it happened to Belinda May? I never had that impression, and she always seemed so conscious of doing right that it would never occur to me. But you've heard about it? Never Belinda May specifically, but she was an attractive young woman. It may have occurred, and certainly she was assaulted. Why don't patients report it? They do, Pamela admitted. To whom? Me? Other nursing personnel? And what do you do? Well, I usually talk directly to the abuser. Military police aren't interested in dependents who get pregnant, Pamela said. Does that work? I think so, mostly at least for a while. What if it continues to happen, Miles said. I report to administrative personnel. A few said I've gone to Springer when personnel advised it. What did he say? He thanked me, said he'd look into it. And nothing happened, Miles guessed. Nothing. I went back to him again with my concerns, and he lectured me on the oversensitivities of women and their eagerness to accuse someone of rape for any reason. I told him that I wasn't talking just about rape, that sexual abuse is often subtle and not always assertive behavior. I can't act on a woman's hurt feelings, Springer said, and I was damned angry. And I said, it's more than hurt feelings, sir. It's degrading, demeaning, humiliating, and it affects women's quality of existence. Without hesitation, he said to me, Dismissed, Lieutenant. But, sir, I countered. Dismissed, he said again, almost yelling. I wish we had another commander, Miles said. Is there someone else to go to? I'm hesitant, sir. Uh, one of the accused was related to the commander. His son, she said. Did you report it? I can't chance a dismissal, and the commander would be vicious, especially with family involved. I'm career, doctor. Miles thanked Pamela. Don't be too persistent, Captain. Pamela warned. It could get vicious. I'm going to talk to the commander about Belinda's sexual assault, Miles said. We all liked her. Just be careful. Miles took Pamela to confront Springer with truth. He was sitting behind his desk in his office. He crushed a smoldering Lucky Strike butt into the aluminum foil wrapper from a Hershey's chocolate bar. What you wanting? Springer asked. It's not what I want, sir, damn it. It's not what I want, sir. Sit down. I'll stand, sir, thank you. Out with it. A patient committed suicide. There's no doubt. Belinda May Cerrone, I heard about it.
There's no doubt it was despair over an unwanted pregnancy. Well, my sympathies to her family, but a woman makes mistakes sometimes. She was sexually assaulted, sir. The child was not her husband's. You can't know that. He's been on assignment in Libya. He hasn't been here. Springer frowned, closing his eyes for a few seconds and tilting his head. He looked at Miles. Okay, so what? It was someone in the hospital. Buckle up, Ballard. I don't want rumors circulating around my herd. Mrs. Cerrone was wrong. She deserves justice. It was her problem, Ballard. That woman was a slut. She was not a slut, Miles said. Was she, Pamela? Uh, no, sir, she wasn't. Bag that talk. She was my patient a couple times, Springer said. I know. You saw her with her children, Miles thought. She was a terrific mother. He looked directly at Springer, who did not raise his stare from the cigarette pack on his desk. Miles doubted Springer personally was a rapist, but he had a strong suspicion Springer knew the perpetrator. That made him an accomplice. There should be an investigation, Miles said. Springer slammed his open hand on the desk and papers fluttered and fell to the floor. God damn it, stop stirring the pot. Whoever it is needs to be justly tried. Mrs. Cerrone deserves that. Look, Ballard, a woman gets pregnant. She claims assault. There is never any case to prosecute. And all women are flirts. Uh, that's not true. You say, sir. Sir. She was a kind, moral, religious woman with a loving family. No way she enticed a man to rape her. A prosecutor would make an accused airman a hero of the Cold War. He'd make the woman a prostitute, find men who would testify against her, and the accused would go unprosecuted, Miles thought. The world would believe the accused was enticed into consensual lovemaking by a wanting woman. Ah, assistant deceased, Captain Springer said. I won't have a scandal in my hospital. Something should be done, Miles persisted. Get out, both of you. Miles and Pamela left to prevent another angry tirade from Springer. Miles stopped by Ingrid and Oliver's place on the way home. Ingrid was alone. Oliver was still at the hospital. I asked Springer to call for an investigation, Miles said. And he refused. Called Belinda May a horse slut. Said no soldier should ever be prosecuted. Did he order you to not be involved? In so many words, did he know who the perpetrator was? I'm 99% sure, but he'd never say. Is there any justice in the military? Uh, not where Springer's concerned. A week later, Miles saw Pamela at the commissary at checkout. Nothing has happened. Nothing will ever be done, Pamela whispered once they were outside. But she never reported anything. She was so afraid of what would happen to her. Would you testify to that, Miles asked. You know, I know who did it. She told me when I visited her. She was distraught. It was Springer's son, Kramer, the one who fills the vending machines in the hospital. And you haven't said anything, Miles asked. 
I promised her I wouldn't. She was adamant, Pamela said. Miles thanked her. Even after death, Miles thought. Miles went immediately to Springer's office, but finally found him at an officer's club sitting at the bar. Miles approached. Oh, we need to talk. Not here, Ballard. Come by the office tomorrow. At a table, then. I'm not in the mood, Captain. I know who raped Belinda May Cerrone, Colonel, and I'm going to report it. Tell the law. Leave me alone. It was your son. Christ, Ballard, Springer said with more irritation than anger. What proof do you have? I have a witness. Who watched a rape? She knew Belinda May well, and Belinda May told her. And that's it? Some broad tells you that a slut told she'd been raped by someone? My son, for God's sake, come on, Ballard, be real. It's not right she was pregnant. And you can never prove the father, even if it was a rape. I'm going to report it. You do that, my friend. Just see how far you get with a dead victim who never reported or complained. She told a reliable source. That's not a victim's response. It should trigger an investigation. Wrong there. These accusations happen once a month, and, and few are investigated, and never by someone who heard from a friend that it was a so-and-so. And if you wanted the investigation restricted, it would never get off the tarmac. Not with no evidence and a supposed victim prostitute. That's not true. I'm going to report it. I have to tell you, Ballard, you've got your head up your ass. You'll suffocate, and I'll be the last to grieve the loss of your miserable life. Miles talked with Ingrid and Oliver the same evening. Springer's right, Miles. It'll never fly, Oliver said. Belinda May needs amends, Miles said. He believed it. Ollie's right, Ingrid said. Belinda May never wanted her pregnancy known or her name to be associated with a pregnancy. It should be addressed, Miles insisted, even just to try to prevent him from doing it again. Belinda May didn't want it, and I think it's wrong to bring it out, Oliver said. It does more harm than good. Let's have a glass of wine and talk about the future and think something we can do about, Ingrid said. And always keep Belinda May's injustice in mind. She deserves not to be forgotten. And that's what they did although Miles never accepted that Springer's son should go scot-free. Chapter 12. The Medical Chart. 1963. Miles. Although Major Schultz's first name was Cuthbert, since childhood he'd been called Reno, the Nevada city where he was born and raised. He was a C-54 pilot of long-standing, a legend of sorts for his flights through the Southern Corridor during the 11-month Berlin airlift in 1949. On a Wednesday night after 10 o'clock, he returned to Chateauroux after a six-day airlift of personnel to the Congo. He'd logged more than 36 hours of flying time and dreaded going home as tired as he was. He drove from the airport to Michel's place near the bumpy landing to see Suzette, a woman who could comfort him. He woke her from a deep sleep, but she was glad to see him. 
It is a hard trip, eh? she asked. Ah, miserable. Glad to be back. Your wife? Uh, she is well, no? Suzette asked. I haven't been home yet, Suzette. She's unhappy. She wants to return to the States. It's good for her to go, no? To be where she wants to be. I think I told you she's from Arkansas, and the school here is much better. And because she's married to me, her family all but disowned me. I feel sad for her, Suzette said. Her compassion for Reno was weak. She knew she was rarely in his thoughts when he was away. And she hates being alone, even with the children. As they shared a bottle of wine, Reno said, She drinks, Suzette. I worry about her health. He left Suzette's apartment near the bumpy landing for Brassoux after midnight. A light mist dimmed the yellow headlights required in France, and he could barely see details a few yards in front of him. The blurred image of a douchefeu pulled onto the road from a side drive. He hit the front end from the side, spinning the car 180 degrees. His car careened across the road with minimally checked momentum. He tried to brake, but within seconds hit a tree trunk head-on and was thrown out of the car into a mass of broken glass and mangled metal. He blacked out. Gendarmes arrived. The French driver, seriously injured, was rushed to a local hospital. Because Reno, as an American, was involved, military police were called, and a military ambulance transported Reno to Chateauroux Air Base Hospital. Miles was on in-house emergency call at the hospital when Reno arrived. As was protocol, initial assessment of injuries was completed by a trained airman, which took more than an hour. By the time Miles answered the phone, dressed and walked to the ER from the on-call room, Schultz's wounds were sutured, x-rays taken, but medications were withheld until Miles could complete a neurologic evaluation. Reno sat on the exam table, his arms back for support, his legs dangling. Miles introduced himself. Reno gave a slightly slurred but intelligible greeting. I'd like to take a blood alcohol, Miles said. I don't want that, Reno said. Well, that's your right, but it would help me establish a diagnosis and assist in providing the right medical assistance. I don't want it, Doc. Miles recorded vital signs, listened to heart and lungs, tested reflexes with a rubber-ended hammer, ankle, knee, and arms, and looked at x-rays of the two injured limbs and found no bone breaks. Reno's speech was slightly garbled but easily understandable. He had difficulty remembering a few details, and his breath had a pungent whiff. When Miles asked again about possible alcohol ingestion, Reno said nothing greening as if he didn't understand. Miles tested the standard signs of driver impairment. He caught Reno when he fell sideways, attempting to complete a heel-to-toe walk-and-turn test. Reno's horizontal gaze showed a slight nystagmus, and he could not perform the finger-to-nose test. Even two hours after the accident, he was unable to comply with a one-leg stand for more than a few seconds. Miles admitted Reno to hospital for observation and completed entry of findings into Reno's chart. The next day, at 10 o'clock, he did a complete re-exam. Reno had no physical or mental impairment and was discharged.
Two days later, at 1,400 hours, an Air Force police officer knocked on Miles' closed exam room door. Miles excused himself from his patient and opened the door. Uh, Captain Ballard, the officer asked. Uh, Miles nodded. Uh, you need it at the hospital. Now? I'm, I'm not on call, Miles said. Now? I have a patient. The officer shrugged. Commander Springer is out of sorts. And it's an emergency? The officer shrugged and gripped Miles' left shoulder with enough authority to start him moving. Springer sat behind his desk and told Miles to close the door. Hey, you treated Reno Schultz two nights ago. Was he drunk? Well, I can't say, sir. He was impaired after an automobile accident. You described detailed tests that showed impairment and probable intoxication. Oh, they're in the chart. Look, Ballard, it's probably he was drunk when the accident went down and when you saw him, but you got to change the chart. Uh, why, sir? I don't want anything about being drunk in there. There is nothing about being drunk. I am not comfortable with altering a medical record, and it's a crime. Take all that drink test stuff out. I can't do that. It's a required examination for the physician. Reno could have brain damage, and it would be malpractice if I didn't examine for it. But he didn't have no brain damage, Springer said. I tell you, Ballard, the accident will be investigated, and medical records will be reviewed. And if it looks bad for Reno, even if there's only a suggestion he's been drinking, it's over for him. What's in that chart will sink him. He could be discharged dishonorably, and he's damn close to retirement. And it will end his career. He'll lose his benefits. I just recorded observations. No unfounded judgments, sir. Investigators reading that chart will say alcohol intoxication, and pilots can't drink before a flight, drunk or not. And he was seen at the bumpy landing talking to a call girl. Police know that. You go to that place to drink. Change the note. It's a felony, Commander. I could lose my license. I'm not asking. I'm telling you. It's an order. I can't. You can and you will. I'll check that chart at 5 o'clock and be sure it's done. Angry about being intimidated by a superior he didn't respect, Miles went from the commander's office to Oliver's exam room. When Oliver finished with the patient and was alone, Miles entered and closed the door. Oliver looked up. Hey, bro. You won't believe this, Miles said. Springer just ordered me to alter a medical record. Really? Miles related the circumstances. What would you do? I'm not sure, Oliver said. It's illegal, Ollie. Well, you can't be sure, Oliver said, and I'd feel really bad if Reno was sober and the accident was just an accident sans alcohol. That would be bad, man. We'll never know the truth, Miles said, but he had symptoms of impairment. You did what was right, but the system makes judgments without considering facts or circumstances. It's the unspoken military rule. Never admit a mistake and a comrade is always innocent. Still, I shouldn't have to lie for Springer. It goes against professional ethics. Well, Springer's put you in a blind alley, man. He's the boss. 
even if he's a dung heap. Sad part, Reno's a regular guy. But I can't make a change in a chart because my patient is a regular guy who made a mistake. Look, worry about Springer's repercussions, Oliver said. He's ruthless, and repercussions could be the pits for you. There's only the remotest chance that changing wording in a chart will come back to haunt you. It's not right, Miles maintained. Maybe you could get Springer to write his opinions. He could make an addition to the chart with his impressions from the evidence and commit his diagnosis based on the chart of no impairment. That's legal. He chuckled when I asked, and he told me to go to hell. Well, you're stuck, man. But you're right. Don't make any changes. Legal has a way to detect them. Thanks, Ollie. Sorry I couldn't do better, Oliver said. Miles walked to the commissary and back, weighing what to do. Thirty minutes later, he was back in Springer's office. I can't do it, Commander, Miles said. Say, sir, Captain. I can't do it, Commander, sir. Well, it's your ass. You can do it, but you won't, and that doesn't go down well with me. That's insubordination. I've done nothing wrong. You don't want to turn down the chance to help a buddy, Ballard. We're all in this together. I won't tamper with the law, Miles said. Watch your back then, Ballard. Nothing good can ever come of this. Miles left without comment. He took the bus back to Bressou. The next day, Reno's wife, Beatrice, in tears and trembling, her voice hoarse from shouting, was at Ingrid and Oliver's house. Ingrid sat reading in one of two aluminum lawn chairs in the yard. Beatrice collapsed in an empty chair before Ingrid could greet her. Reno will be punished for drunk driving. He's be dismissed, lose retirement, and refuse to support me and the children. What can I do to help? Ingrid asked. I can't take it no more. Beatrice broke into sobs. Colonel Springer said Dr. Ballard could save Reno. Reno's been grounded until investigation is complete. He'll lose incentive pay. I'm sorry, Ingrid said. You know Dr. Ballard. He is a friend, Ingrid admitted. It wasn't Reno's fault. Were there witnesses? I don't think so. So what can Dr. Ballard do? He can say it was an accident. Reno wasn't drunk. That's all he has to do. Well, Dr. Ballard didn't see the accident. And no one can know what definitely causes an accident. Even if they witness it, doctors treat patients. They're not lawyers. They don't make judgments on personal causes of happenings. It could be blurred vision from the fog, failed brakes, the Frenchman's not looking both ways. I just want to ask him to do what's right. I'm sure he's done what's right. By the book, Ingrid said. That's who he is. There he is now. Ingrid pointed to Miles' car, preparing to pull into the drive. Beatrice ran to Miles as he got out of the car. Dr. Ballard, she cried. Hello, Beatrice. Say he wasn't drunk, she blurted out. Ingrid came up and said hello to Miles. Would you like something, she asked both of them. No, he's got to do what's right, Beatrice screamed. It was the frog's fault. Reno wasn't drunk. Beatrice, I never said he was drunk. That's what Springer said. Come sit down, Ingrid said to Beatrice. 
Bullshit, Beatrice screamed. She slapped Miles in the face and his head thrust to the side. She slapped him again before he could recover. Ingrid reached out to pull Beatrice from Miles, but Beatrice was taller by inches and 50 pounds heavier than Ingrid, and she broke away, backing toward the road. Please come in, Ingrid offered. I'll make coffee. Beatrice hissed. I don't want your coffee, and began running to her house. After an awkward pause, Ingrid said to Miles, I'm sorry. He was touching a red splotch on his cheek. Apologies not needed or warranted, Miles said. She feels wronged. Come on in and relax, Ingrid said. Allie will be home in a few minutes. Miles saw the Jaguar coming down the road and waited with Ingrid to greet Oliver. Two days later, the airman from medical records called Miles. Sorry, sir, but do you have Major Renal Schultz's chart? Miles said he didn't. It's gone, sir. Do you remember the last time you saw it? I haven't seen the chart since the night I examined him. I left it in the exam room for the nurse when I'd finished making my entries. Ask her. I did. You remember that day, sir? Miles paused. Uh, last Tuesday night. Uh, thank you, sir. Miles saw Oliver in the cafeteria the next day. Oliver pulled him out of the dessert line. What happened? Oliver asked. I refused. Springer cursed. Any assassination attempts? Uh, nothing. A few threats. But the chart can't be found. My God, where do you think it is? If they had any idea, it wouldn't be lost, Miles grinned without humor. But you think Springer did it? Don't you? Given the timing of that chart missing, I think that chart will never be found. It's irrecoverable ashes scattered over the parking lot, Oliver said. I know you're right, Miles said. I heard the driver of the Duchevaux died, but the French won't press charges. Apparently it's tricky for them dealing with American military personnel. I'll probably be asked sometime to testify about the exam, Miles said. Ah, uh, it will fade away, bro. Well, the breathalyzer results are gone, Miles said. But they're not valid evidence in court anyway. Relax. Well, now you don't have to worry. Let it go, my man. I even had an anonymous death threat by phone last night. People know, Miles said. Oliver shook his head. Let it pass. Not easy, my friend. Chapter 13 Wayward Arrival Fall, 1963 Ingrid Agnes Coletti arrived in Chateauroux in late 1963. She was the 53-year-old unmarried sister of the light colonel adjutant to General Reed. Her mother had died, and she'd come to stay with her brother, her only living close relative. Agnes was introduced to General Reed, who insisted that Ingrid, as the best guide for newcomers, be assigned to her. Agnes requested a visit to Noah, the home of the 19th-century radical feminist George Song. Agnes, a Minnesota native, was overdressed for the season, wearing lace-up fur-lined hiking boots, cargo pants, and a down jacket. The clothes were loose on her 5-foot-5-inch frame, she wore thick glasses that made her eyes look small, clip-on sunglasses, 
and a baseball cap that came down to her ears with Philly's 1950s stitched in red thread on the front. You're a baseball fan? Ingrid asked as they began to drive to Doan in one of the three Packard sedans used by the military for tours. Uh, since I was a little girl, it was time I spent alone with my father, Agnes said. What a special relationship, Ingrid said. Not really. He was a tyrant. A baseball game was the only time I ever saw him. Why 1950? They won the pennant, but they lost the World Series in four games straight. Uh, did you ever consider switching loyalty to a more successful team? I should have, I guess, but I didn't go to games because I liked baseball. I liked that my father took me. He gave me some attention. After he died, I think the memories of going to a game with him gave me satisfaction that I couldn't find elsewhere. You a baseball fan? Well, I'm sorry to say I've never been to a game. Well, that's good. It's a slow, stupid game. I always took a book to read. I'd look up when my father said his favorite outfielder was at bat and with one swing could tie the game for extra innings. Did you request Noah because you're a writer? Ingrid asked him. Is George Song a favorite? I love the translation of the Master Mosaic Makers. I studied French to read her original French version, and I bought a first edition when I was in Paris many years ago. Expensive, but it was worth it. I'd like to discover her as a woman. She made a significant contribution to society as a feminist, and she struggled throughout her life with religion. Uh, was she anti-Semitic? She lived for years with Chopin at Nantes, didn't she? You're Jewish? We are. And I know of Chopin's anti-Semitism. It must have been difficult for Sin. Chopin was anti-Semitic, but I've never known Sin's exact feelings. She seemed more focused on sexism. What do you write? Ingrid asked. Oh my, I'm not very focused. I would like to write fiction that reveals humanity in our age and creates meaning through story. And I've written nonfiction all but two at an unpublishable level. Are you a teacher? I've taught music and history of music 16 years. That sounds fascinating. It's what I love. As a vocation, not a business to be sure. Ingrid pointed out a farmhouse where same-day fresh eggs were always available. Do you cook, she asked. Ah, uh, minimally. My brother and I are hiring a chef for main meals or else eating out. Well, even if only for breakfast and lunch, eggs from that farm are worth discovering, and I can recommend meat stores and bakeries. Being in farm country, produce is local and always fresh, depending on the season. You must cook, Agnes said. I do now, Ingrid replied. I took courses in town. I never found pleasure in food preparation before. It was a burden to existence, but France made me curious as to how they perfected food preparation as an art form. They drove among vast fields of sunflowers, wheat, pastures for cows and goats, and fallow fields for horses to graze. Is there a Catholic church near the base? Agnes asked. I've heard that St. Andre in Chateauroux is popular with Americans, and there's a 12th century cathedral nearby in Bourges. 
Is that a long way away? My brother is agnostic and doesn't go to church. I'd have to go alone. It's not a long drive, and the road is good, too, the N-151. We'll see it in Isodun. And French drivers? Are they dangerous? A little wonky. Ingrid pointed to a vintage Duchebeau. It's those little snail-paced two-seater tin cans that are annoying. And there are farmers' tractors on the road, too, and ox carts. Oh, they can be hairy. We've had our VW van shipped over, Agnes said. Well, you'll be safe, Ingrid looked to Agnes. We're going to visit the Cathedral of Bourges on Friday, Roman Catholic. Would you like to go? Uh, I, th I think so, Agnes said. Then said after an inexplicable pause, Oh, of course, she said. Will your brother be available? He hasn't had time since he arrived. I'll invite my husband's best friend then. He likes to explore, and so there'll be four of us. We'll have a tour and then a dinner in the evening before coming back. That's good, Agnes said dismissively. Ingrid was becoming more impressed with Agnes's eccentric but sharp intellect. But her ice sculpture personality and sharp tongue, with often failures to respond, brought on low expectations of enjoyment to Ingrid of the upcoming trip to Bourges. A week later, on a Friday afternoon, Ingrid and Oliver introduced Miles to Agnes. The four of them started on an excursion to explore the Roman Catholic Cathedral, San Etienne, in Bourges. Miles and Agnes sat in the back of the car. How was the flight in, Miles asked Agnes. Oh, it was terrifying. We refueled in Greenland and then in Shannon. I'm not a strong advocate of flying. I spent hours in the toilet, the red X light on the outside, mostly praying to survive. And your brother's a pilot, Miles asked. Oh, many years ago. He does mostly administration consulting now for the general. But you still fly? Of course. Flying means so much to him. He's very kind. He floods me with rational explanations on how safe it is. They slumped into silence. This is our first time to Bourges, Ingrid finally said, for the cathedral. Agnes turned her head to Miles. Do you enjoy cathedral, son? Miles was surprised by the question. He hadn't thought about cathedrals particularly. I'm not very religious, he said. I hope it's all right that I called ahead, Agnes said to Ingrid. I have an appointment to talk with the senior organist at four o'clock. Do you know him? Uh, Ingrid asked. Oh, not personally, but he's famous. Was he surprised you called? I'm Catholic, good at the lingo, and there's an organist international group that meets annually and keeps in touch. Hey, Oliver said. The men here are for the ride and a few beers in a cafe before dinner, right, Miles? Sounds like a plan, Miles said, unenthusiastic about a few beers. And you play a pipe organ? Ingrid asked. My mother thought music was my only talent. And I, I, I know she was right. I studied with Armin Peterson. They arrived in part. As they walked into the entrance of the shadow of the cathedral, its silhouette immersed them. It's an amazing structure, Ingrid thought. She gasped as they approached the entrance. Are you all right, Miles asked. Ingrid laughed, just astonished. 
It's a little overdone, Agnes said. Doesn't look like a place where God might live. More like an emperor from a royal line of despots. On the weekend, it's God's retreat, Oliver joked. This is so much more than I imagine, Ingrid said in reverence. Miles gazed at the front of the structure. A Gothic cathedral on a hill with dual flying buttresses presiding over the city of Bourges. They approached the front five portals with large and small sculptures above the arched doors, illustrating the day of judgment, the punishment of the sinners, and the stoning of St. Stephen. They're so animated, Ingrid thought, and so many, so unique with life. Ugly little creatures, aren't they, Agnes said. No one agreed. They entered into the immense and unified interior space, a hundred yards long at least, Ingrid estimated, with soaring pillars in the vault. I think Notre Dame in Paris is better, Agnes said. Ingrid felt the verticality of the interior to be transcendent, a unique sensation. Uh, this is higher than Notre Dame, she said. It's in the guidebook. It's not as grand, Agnes admonished. The preserved stained glass windows filtered kaleidoscopic rays from the mid-afternoon sun and dispersed vibrant spectral colors around them. As a dutiful Catholic, Agnes knelt in prayer. Oliver spoke to the group when Agnes stood. Well worth the trip, he said, but I'm up for a little refreshment while you go to your appointment, Agnes. He looked at Miles. You be ready, my man? Where are you going, Ingrid asked. To a cafe for a beer. You women can join us. Ingrid turned to Agnes. May I join you for your appointment? Agnes nodded assent. Of course. Miles, growing a fascination with the interior of the cathedral, made him want to stay. He hesitated, afraid to hurt Oliver's feelings, but finally said, I think I'll stay with the women, Ollie. What a bummer, Oliver said. Inside, Ingrid and Agnes and Miles studied the 13th to 15th century windows that predominated the side walls of the cathedral. After they explored the naves, they walked to a 15th century astronomical clock the components larger than a small truck. A sign set on a hand-carved music stand announced, The clock was installed 1424 in a belfry-shaped painted case and bells chime on the hour. As if on demand, the clock chimed on the quarter hour and then again later on the hour sounding the first four notes of the Salvagina. It was time to keep Agnes's appointment with the organist, a short, thin man with disheveled white hair and myopic thick lenses in a silver wire frame. He spoke slowly and hesitantly with heavily accented English. 2,500 pipes were concealed in different locations, he said. The bellows that supplied airflow to the pipes historically inflated manually were now activated by a motorized blower, moving oscillated air to create the sound. The organist demonstrated 50 stops, four keyboards, and a set of pedals on the console that immersed most listeners and irritated others in an ethereal transcendental embrace. The organist asked Agnes if she would like to play. She was visibly eager, but effused no appreciation. She had never expected a Frenchman to be gracious. 
The ordinance retrieved slippers from a cabinet for her to wear. Miles admired her confidence and her lack of anxiety as she slid to the spot on the bench where she could reach the most remote foot pedals. Her touch on the keyboard seemed magical as she played Bach's concerto in A minor. Tourists stopped to intently listen for a full twelve minutes, the pedal-swelling bass tone surging to the heights and nooks of the cathedral's interior. Ingrid was moved to tears. Miles felt a unique awe for music he had never known before. At the finish, Agnes entered a private discussion with the organist, and as they walked back out to the Jaguar, Ingrid asked Agnes what the discussion was about. I asked him to uh, tutor me on my uh, improvement. And, Ingrid asked. He said he'd ask the bishop, Agnes said. Oliver waited at the car. Ingrid gave him a brief hug. Agnes played the organ, she said to Oliver. It was magical. I didn't know you were going to play, he said to Agnes. Well, it was highly improbable, Agnes responded. Together they walked to dinner. The restaurant was quaint, with a certain reserved elegance from another era. They sipped regional wine suggested by the sommelier. When Oliver asked, Ingrid gave him a brief description of the cathedral's crypt interior. It's all overdone, Agnes said, even for a Catholic. It has a spiritual beauty, Ingrid thought, unique and inspirational. Is a cathedral like being in a synagogue, Miles asked Ingrid. It's different, she said. The cathedral gave me a unique feeling of limitless extraterrestrial space. But how does it compare to a synagogue, Miles asked. You know, I find the cathedral less reverent in some ways. Growing up with the Jewish faith as a cultural humanizing experience, it was different in the cathedral. The cathedral lacked the feel of humanity I feel in a synagogue most of the time, even if there are only a few worshipers there. But each area of worship has its own effect on me. The cathedral tends to be reverent by an expansive display of space and artistic achievement. I felt awed at the grandiosity to which I had never been exposed. I felt it too, Miles said. Ingrid continued, Catholicism is probably an individual experience of connecting with God in a distinctive, personalized way. I'm not sure I can explain. Is Judaism a more communal interaction with God? Is that what you mean? Miles asked. I think that's, uh, Ingrid began, the clamor of two U.S. military police entering the restaurant caused a sudden silence among the patrons. Heads turned. The police surveyed the diners. They walked directly to Oliver and Miles, their boots pounding the wooden floor, breaking the persistent, apprehensive quiet of the intrusion. Ballard? Stern? The older policeman asked. Miles and Oliver raised their hands. Return to base. Why now? What's up, Miles asked. The president's been shot. The president? President Kennedy. The police sergeant was near to shouting, exasperated and impatient. Nearby customers gasped, Ingrid's eyes dampened with tears. Communist, Agnes accused without knowing. Is he all right? Ingrid asked. We don't know. Where? Miles asked. In Dallas. All medical personnel have been ordered to the hospital. We've got others to track down. 
As the police thudded to the door, the Americans were silent with concern. Finally, straining for relevance, Miles said to Oliver, We'd better get moving. The women stood and prepared to leave. Miles took bills from his wallet to leave on the table. Ah, uh, no, monsieur, the owner said. You do not pay. We grieve deeply for your president. Thank you, Miles said. The women were ready, and as they walked to the door, the owner pressed a bottle of red wine into Ingrid's hands. With our condolences, madame, he said, and backed away as a chef in a toque opened the door for their exit. More than one-third of the diners stood in respect for the Americans. At the hospital, staff and personnel prepared for an onslaught of injured from a possible Soviet nuclear attack. Commander Springer told Miles to go to command headquarters and be prepared to treat the general for any medical emergency. When Miles arrived in the command room at headquarters, the general merely waved acknowledgment of his presence and returned to gaze to a blackboard where a lieutenant was recording times that officers from a contingency response wing would report to fly a requisition military C-135, a plane that would be in the air 24 hours a day. In the event of attacks on military installations, assigned specially trained personnel would restore the Chateauroux Air Station to a fully functioning facility, Operation Mohawk. Miles was included as essential personnel and would be, when required, on flights with the general. Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald dead. An American intelligence investigated possible Soviet involvement in the assassination plot. Oswald's involvement with Russia as a CIA agent was suspected. The base remained on full alert for more than three months. This is the end of Episode 2 of Tour of Duty by William H. Coles. To continue, download Episode 3.